Folks, I was struck when Fiona read that Bible passage for us this evening. It's not the easiest passage. Um, I actually, I didn't find it so bad at home uh, when I was in the study working on it. Don't, don't, don't lose heart. Uh, the passage that we've just read together, I think it is understandable. And I hope that by the time we, we spend a few minutes thinking about this together, we'll have a, a clear sense uh, of what Paul's saying at this point in, in Galatians. Please have it open in front of you. I can't help you at all this evening unless you have that passage open because uh, we will be referring to it uh, very, very regularly. And there, there are a few detailed little bits of argument in there that I would need you to, to have open in front of you. So it's page uh, 1169, Galatians chapter 3. And knowing that it's a, a tricky passage and that we're going to have to think a little bit, I think more than ever, we commend ourselves to the help of God's Holy Spirit. So let's pray together just now. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you above all that you've chosen to show yourself to us. Uh, you don't keep yourself hidden. There's nothing in your word that, that, that cannot be understood or that, that must be beyond us. So we pray that you would come be among us by your spirit. Help us to understand these things that we've read, but above all, to see the implications of them for our lives and to live them out when you've shown them to us. We pray that you would help us here this evening, Father God. Amen. Paul is furious with the believers in Galatia. Uh, we saw that when we began this series uh, three weeks ago, and it, it wasn't quite as clear uh, in the passage which Philip guided us through uh, last week, but it comes again to the fore in the opening verses uh, of our passage this evening. Let's quickly remind ourselves why Paul is so agitated. What's going on? What, why is he so, so angry? Well, as soon as he begins his letter, in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you, by the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel. The believers, says Paul, in Galatia are turning from the gospel. And when you turn from the gospel, you turn from God. You can't have the wrong gospel and still claim to be with God. So there are Jewish Christians in Galatia. They're approaching Gentile believers in their community, and they're telling them, listen, you can't please God just by obeying or just by believing in Jesus Christ. You need more. You need to be circumcised. You need to enter into the rituals of the Jewish law. Jesus has saved you. That's good. But you need more. So that's the gist of what's going on there. So Paul is irate with these Jewish Christians because they're perverting the gospel. But we noticed this in the first week. He's not only irate with the Jewish Christians, he's irate also with the Gentile Christians who are allowing themselves to be led astray. There's a responsibility on God's people not to allow others to lead us astray from the gospel. So Paul begins his letter by making it crystal clear that he's angry with these Gentiles for giving up their freedom and in the passage that Philip dealt with last week, Paul gives a considerable amount of biographical 
detail. And he uses it to demonstrate the freedom that he has found in Jesus Christ. There are three different movements there. First of all, Paul tells us that he was free to change. In verses 11 to 24 of chapter 1, he tells the story of how he once hated Jesus Christ. He, he persecuted the church, anyone who followed Jesus and loved him. But then God called him to a brand new identity. Now Paul loves Jesus. Instead of destroying the church, he builds it up. By God's grace, Paul was free to change. Change entirely. In Christ, Paul has found a freedom to resist the religious authorities of his day. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, he tells a story of going uh, to Jerusalem with a Gentile friend, Titus. He talks of the freedom that he found to, to resist people who wanted to have Titus circumcised. He also tells of a freedom he found to resist people who tried to talk him out of his Gentile mission. So in Paul, in Christ, sorry, Paul has found freedom to resist the religious authorities and to serve Christ alone. Isn't that interesting? The person who's free in Christ will sometimes have to stand up against religious leadership. Thirdly, by, Paul, by God's grace, Paul has found himself free to explore a new way of life. So in verses 11 to 21 of chapter 2, Paul tells of a time when Peter, who had found freedom in Christ, retreated into the captivity of the Jewish law. Peter was afraid of what other people might think of him. He was willing to give up the freedoms that he had won because he wanted to keep the approval of men. Paul refused. Paul watched as Peter walked back into captivity and Paul said, Peter, you go, but I'm not going. In verse 21, he says, I do not set aside the grace of God. Paul is a Christian. He is in Christ. He's found real freedom from his own past from the wrong kinds of religious leadership and from the Jewish law. He is free and he will not go back. Paul won't go back into captivity and he won't tolerate his Galatian friends doing it either. You foolish Galatians, he screams in verse 1 of chapter 3. Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. The verb here that underlies that clearly portrayed, it talks about public notices or pictures or portraits that were put up in a public place to be read. I think the analogy is probably the modern billboard. It's the thing that goes up in the place where everyone can see it. Paul preached Jesus in a way that was as clear as the cross that stands outside of our church this evening. This was totally in the open. 
entirely unmistakable. This is the Christian gospel that Paul preached. And Paul preached it so clearly and so openly that he's at a loss to see how his converts could be making this mistake that they are. You can, you can understand this. this. This doesn't make sense, this letter, unless you allow it to be personal. Put yourself in the shoes of Paul. He's preached, he's preached Christ to these people, and now they're wandering off. It's personal for him. That's why he's so angry. If the Galatians had truly grasped the gospel that Paul had preached, that Christ on the cross had done everything that's necessary for their salvation, then they would have realized that the only thing required of them was to receive and to believe. To add circumcision or to add any other part of the Jewish law, that's an offense to the finished work of Christ. That's why Paul's so angry. In verses 2 to 5, Paul starts to dismantle the position that these Gentile believers have taken. There's a a long string of questions in there, but I'm only going to deal with the first because it's the, the important and umbrella one. He says, I'd like you to know one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Paul asks them to step back a few years in their own minds. To that time when they first came to faith in Jesus Christ, that moment when they received the Spirit of Jesus, we're not sure how the the presence of the Spirit was evident in their lives. Verse 5 seems to suggest that there were miracles going on in this church. So the Spirit, the evidence of, of the Spirit's presence was very real. For all that we don't know about the Spirit in Galatia, Paul's argument's clear. You guys received the Spirit of Jesus long before these Jewish troublemakers ever showed up. When you heard the gospel preached, when you believed what you heard, the Spirit came to you. Why then would you allow yourselves to be drawn away into captivity of the Jewish law? Paul is angry with them because they've left the simple gospel and they've entered into religious trappings. I wonder what Paul would make of some of our evangelical communities in Ulster this evening. Speaking from recent experience, I can tell you that there are well-meaning believers in churches not far from here who are caught up in all kinds of rules and regulations that have nothing to do with the gospel. These people are saved, well and truly, but they've picked up a whole system of churchy laws along the way. These laws are keeping them a captive and and they're, they're effectively ending the opportunity that they will have ever to share the gospel with other people. You see, there are communities of God's people where you can't enter into that community. You can't become a Christian unless you take along a lot of other rules and regulations too. The kinds of things that we've talked about in the last few weeks, rules about um, how you dress, what you eat or drink, what version of the Bible you use, you can add to them. You know what I'm talking about. There are communities 
in the province here where it's hard for a person to find Christ unless they buy into all this stuff as well. Folks, that's not only sad, that's anti-gospel. These communities make it hard for people to encounter Christ. Don't misunderstand me. It's hard for anyone to encounter Christ. Christ demands on us to follow him, to carry our cross. Those are very real. But those are the real demands of following Christ. What we don't need is churches adding layer after layer after layer of religious rules. Folks, Paul's anger with the church in Galatia is a very real anger. And it's one that we must be aware of. It's a very valid one still today. Let's come back to this situation in Galatia. The reason why Paul is so committed to clarifying this issue is because the stakes are so high. If the stakes aren't high, you don't really, it doesn't matter if people are getting things wrong. But it's when the stakes are sky high that you've got to be crystal clear on these matters. Philip showed us last week that the topic here is justification. How are human beings made right with God? Nothing could be more important. The outcomes are so entirely opposite. Paul talks in verses 6 to 14 about two alternatives, two different outcomes. If I summarize them for you, he talks on the one hand about living in in blessing or living under curse. The stakes are massive. He begins in verse 6 by talking about blessing. And he takes us back to Abraham. Paul asks the Galatians to consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's a quotation from Genesis chapter 15 verse 6. Let me remind you quickly of the circumstances. By this stage, Abraham's an old man. He's got no children. But God's promised him that he's going to have a son and a nation of descendants. So one day, God takes this childless old man out of his tent late at night and points to the stars of the sky. And God says, see that, Abraham? That's, see the number of stars there? That's the number of descendants that I'm going to give you. Now, Abraham had no reason in the world to believe that what God was saying was true. No reason. He was an old man. His wife was an old woman. For years they'd wanted to have children. It hadn't happened. But Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. God looked at Abraham's response and saw it as good. So Paul takes this foundational event in the life of Israel and he applies it to the Gentile Christians in Galatia. He says, understand then that those who believe are the children of Abraham. Do you see what Paul's saying here? You already are. Abraham is the father of those who believe and you have believed. Notice the word blessing. 
repeated in verses 8 and 9. This is how we come to live under God's blessing. We believe God and we receive the grace that he extends to us. We receive God's blessing today, you and I, by believing in the crucified Jesus and receiving the forgiveness that he wins for us. There's no other way to live under the blessing of God. In verses 10 to 14, Paul goes on to contrast this life of blessing with the curse of living under the law. Look at verse 10. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything in the, written in the book of the law. Paul's quoting the Old Testament here understandably, and he does so repeatedly throughout this passage. You'll see the footnotes at the bottom of the page in your pew Bible. We don't have time to do so now, but if you look back in your Bibles to chapters 27 and 28 of Deuteronomy, you'd find that at the end of a long section giving the law, in those two chapters we read a long list of blessings and curses. And what, what Paul does here is he quotes one of those curse passages. Any, any Jew hearing Paul at this point would have been entirely familiar with what he was talking about. They were f- very familiar with this world of blessings and curses. But what Paul says here is massively controversial. He shocks these religious Jews by saying that the people who are under the curse, you see, the Jews believe that the people who are under God's curse are the Gentiles because they didn't have the law. Paul says no. Paul says anyone who tries to be right with God by obeying the law is under the curse. Anyone who tries to obey the law but doesn't keep it in its entirety, and that's everyone, because nobody's perfect. All those people, says Paul, anyone who tries to live under the law lives under a curse. What he does here actually is he confronts the Gentiles. They're the guys who are at the point of decision here. Will we continue to live by grace as we always did? Or or will we go this law route? Will we go in the way of Judaism? He confronts them. And he says, guys, understand what you're getting involved with here. You've got to realize the full implications of this path that you're about to choose. If you place yourself under the law, if you try to be justified with God by keeping the law, then you must keep the entire law. Otherwise, you risk living under the curse. Anyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Friends, the logic is irrefutable. If you want to be made right with God, By obeying the law, go for it. Enter into a perfect life from birth to death. Then you will be right with God. But remember what God's word teaches. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All who live under the law are cursed.
Friends, do you see now how hopeless it is for any person to approach God on their own merits? To come and to say, Lord, I'm I'm a respectable kind of guy. I pay my taxes. I keep my nose clean. I was baptized in the Presbyterian church. Folks, if we come to God trusting in our own goodness and our respectability, if we choose that way, we are cursed. We're doomed. Each one of us must finally give up all hope of being made right with God in this way. And I would plead with you this evening, whoever you are, don't rely on yourself. You're maybe a much better person than I am. I I, I trust that a lot of you are. I hope that you are. But you're cursed. If you approach God on your own merits, don't live under the curse of God. Please don't do it. In verses 13 to 14, Paul shows us how God has lifted the curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Friends, Jesus did on the cross what we can't do for ourselves. The only way to escape God's curse is not by our work. It's through the work of Jesus. He has redeemed us. He's ransomed us. He set us free from our captivity. This gracious mercy of God, it's open to all who believe. In verse 14, Paul tells us that Jesus redeemed us in order that the blessing might be given to Abraham, might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, so that by faith we might receive the promises of the Spirit. Folks, we've seen here, we can't ever be justified by the law. But any person can be justified before God by trusting in Jesus Christ. If we go the law route, we live a cursed life. If we receive Christ, we receive all the blessings that God would give us. If you've been following this argument, by this stage there's a huge elephant in the room. There's a question that's, that's just crying out and begging to be asked. Paul, if that's all true, then what is the point of the law? And Paul asks that question in verse 19. What then is the purpose of the law? If God justifies people by believing in his promises, by receiving Jesus Christ, then why did the law ever exist? And to answer this question, Paul reminds us of how the promise and how the law first came into being. Paul begins in verse 15 to tell us how how God's gracious promise came first. What he does here is he compares God's promise to Abraham. We thought about it a moment ago. He compares that to a human will 
which cannot be altered. And he says in verse 17 that the law, and this is the, the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai, introduced 430 years later, doesn't set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. Paul's making the point here that God's promise to Abraham still stands. And it stands on its own terms, regardless of what comes later. You see, God can't lie. God can't promise Abraham one day, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to bless the whole world for you. And then turn around and say, no, I've changed my mind. I'm going to go down this law route. There's a law here for the Jews, and anybody who obeys it will be made right with me. That's Paul's point in verse 18. He said, if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So God's dealings with his people Israel begin with a gracious promise to Abraham. But we're still back to this question. Well, if the law doesn't change things, what's the point of the law? You can almost hear these, these Jewish prophets, uh, the, these guys who were undermining uh, Paul's ministry. Really, Paul, you've gone too far. If it really is through faith alone that a person is in Christ and that the benefits come through God's promises to Abraham, what's the point of the law? You've, you've mucked up your argument. You've made the law entirely superfluous. But in the remainder of the passage here, Paul shows that that's not the case. Paul has a place for the law. It's an absolutely crucial place for the law. It's an essential part in the purposes of God. The function of the law, Paul says, wasn't to bring salvation, but to convince people of their need of it. He says in verse 19, it was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. If you really want to come to grips with this particular issue, the purpose of God's law, Paul explains it much more fully in Romans. He tells us there that the knowledge of sin comes through the law. He says, where there is no law, there's no transgression. And he says, if it had not been for the law, I should not have known sin. So the main purpose of the law is to expose sin. It makes sin a legal offense against the stated will of God. Maybe I can help you with an example here. Speeding. It's always a bad thing. Speeding puts at risk the life of the person driving the vehicle, any passengers they might have with them, and pedestrians nearby. But what makes speeding a legal offense is the law. It's that 30 mile an hour sign. It's all the legislation that stands behind it. The law takes a bad action 
and makes it into a definite legal offense, an offense against the giver of that law. That's what the law does. It makes concrete our offense against God. Folks, it's important for us that we understand the the role of the law in Christian theology. So I want you to stick with me just for a moment. We're nearly finished. Luther speaks on this subject in his usual forthright way. He says, the law does not make men better, but worse. It shows them their sin, that by the knowledge of their sin, they might be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken. And by this means might be driven to seek grace and so come to Christ. Friends, isn't Luther right? We need the law to convince us of our need of Christ. I don't know if there's any time in history when that's been more true than today. Because if we relied on the morality of the culture around us to let us know when we offended God, I think we'd be lost. It would be hard to see at all just how far we have wandered from God and his will. John Stott puts it well in his Galatians commentary. This place of the law. He says, not until the law has bruised and smitten us will we admit our need of the gospel to bind up our wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned us and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification and for life. Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us even to hell will we turn to the gospel to raise us up to heaven. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you see now why Paul is so angry? Why he's so driven and so so desires to set the record straight in Galatia? What's at stake here is the very centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To be wrong about this is to be wrong about everything. Friends, let me close and say to myself and to you this evening, this life in God, this life in Christ is not based on anything that we do. It's all a gift of God's grace. We can't get right with God on the basis of our work, but only on the basis of the work of Christ. We can't please God by keeping his laws. That will only lead us to live under God's curse. The life that pleases God is the life of faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior, the one who took God's curse for us. This is the blessed life. It's the only free life. It's my heart's desire for for me and for each one of you. Let's pray.
Father God, we thank you for this tough and, and theologically demanding passage in your word. This, this passage which has a desire just to set the record straight. Thank you that you've shown us here clearly this evening. More clearly than, than we have any excuse to ignore. We cannot be right with you. Only by your grace and your mercy. So Lord we throw ourselves on you. We say that we've seen our sin uh, we, we know that we're cursed as we live under the law. We've seen our sin and we need your mercy and grace. Lord, would you give us that? Thank you that we stand this evening at the, the entry point of a week when we will remember Jesus. We'll remember his, his long walk to the cross. We'll remember how he gave himself there for us. Because he loved us. Lord, help us, each one of us. Because he loved us.